I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And that brief deafening silence is the absence of Tim McIntosh here on Close Reads. loud absence. (laughs) This is uh, Close Reads. It's a podcast for the incurable reader. And in this episode, we are going to be starting our conversation about death on the Nile. Agatha Christie's great novel. Uh, one of her best, I think. And we're going to, I want to talk about the Agatha Christie canon here in a second, but um, we need to talk about Tim's absence. Heidi, Tim, Tim couldn't be here. Do we know? He, he couldn't join us. You know, the thing is, I have so much he rage may, about he it. maybe could have, he chose not to, or am I throwing, is I, that I agree. too strong, too strongly put? <laughs> no, I think that that was, I think that that's just accuracy that you're going for. Mm. Just honesty, which is a virtue. <laughs> Yeah, he just got back from vacation and he's like, oh, yeah. I'm jet lagged. I've been in Aruba. <laughs> he thought he was going to get away with not being on an episode, but then you and I had to postpone our regular recording time. And then he was like, oh, I got to travel. I got work meetings. I got stuff to catch up on. And here we are, 11 o'clock Eastern time on Friday night recording. And I feel like maybe he, he could have made it. I agree. You're not wrong. But we love Tim. We're not actually throwing him under the bus. We uh, very much appreciate that he got a chance. To- I only gossip about people. I love. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, uh, we're glad that he got a chance to go to Aruba and um, we're probably going to get some great stories out of it. If his last trip to Aruba, <laughs> if there's any, uh, right. any indication. Yeah. If anybody, so- any of us listeners ever have an opportunity to sit down and have a cocktail or a glass of wine or some, I don't know, cup of tea yeah. with Tim. Orange Definitely juice. ask him about his first trip to Aruba and you'll hear some stories. Yeah. Or you could potentially come to, say, a close reads retreat and you could hear the tale, the many tales, the myriad tales that he has about his vacations and all kinds of other things. Interesting guy. Let's just say that. Lots of stories. Which, of course, I want to just mention. Tales of Aruba nights. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sounds like a there's like a satire in there somewhere that that needs to be written, but I, you know that does right. bring us to the close reads retreat because on Monday at 1 p.m. registration is going to open for the 2022 close reads retreat. It's going to be on Brideshead Revisited and the Bright Young Things, um, which was the group of writers that Evelyn Waugh was part of. He coined the name Bright Young Things. So each day we're going to be discussing. Brideshead Revisited, but then we're also going to be discussing some of the poets that were part of that circle that kind of helped inform Waugh's work and that era. And we're going to talk about all the ways that that book, which is really about the way that uh, faith uh, and tradition kind of brushed up, crashed into the romance and glamour of the modern age and um, the way the, the dissonances and conflicts and choices that come out of that smashing together. So it's a great book because, well, on, on its own merit, but it's also a great book for this time that we're living in right now. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted, mm-hmm. we wanted to discuss it. And Heidi, we know this is one of your favorite books. So um, it's my favorite novel in the land, like of all the lands. <laughs> this is my favorite. No- this is my favorite novel. This Brideshead Revisited is, and it is a source of great agony to my soul that I've never been able to discuss it with close range people officially. So this is going to right so many wrongs. (laughs) This is just a a remedy. This is the world coming. The cosmos is being put to rights here. (laughs) Please join us. Yeah, it's going to be a great time. We, of course, we only have 20 rooms available, 20 20 sleeping rooms available. So uh, it's 20 spots barring 
people sharing rooms or bringing a spouse or something. Um, so we have a very limited space. Um, we're going to see how this one goes. It's possible, you know, if there's enough demand, maybe we'll do another event at some point. Maybe we'll do a long weekend event. We have lots of ideas, things that we want to do, but this first event is, is going to be uh, going registration is going to be going up on Monday. So that's going to be Monday the 9th. Join us. Can't wait for that. Okay. But we of course are here to discuss death and the Nile. We're going to discuss the beginning of it before we do that though. Heidi, I want to tell you about um, a program that's sponsoring the podcast this month. Would you like, would you like to hear about Please them? Please do. I so, really do. I'm all ears. So this is the, Dazzle me. <laughs> the Signum Academy. So Heidi, I want to ask you a question. Do you love books, languages, or creative writing? Yes. All three. Well, check, then, check, check. <laughs> then Signum Academy's Sounds clubs. Like something is about to be for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Signum Academy's clubs program offers low stress live online sessions where you can discuss your favorite books, participate in creative writing workshops, and learn awesome languages like Spanish, French, German, Japanese, Latin, Greek, Old English, and wow, even Old Norse. So you can attend your club's sessions from anywhere, such as maybe in your dining room or living room in Colorado or maybe in Aruba. And you will get to connect with other students from around the world under the guidance of passionate teachers who love this stuff as much as you do. It's perfect either as an extracurricular activity or as a supplement to a homeschool curriculum. And unfortunately, Heidi, the club's program is available for students eight to 18. But let's say you were to enroll one of your kids, you could still, you know, you know, like watch over a shoulder. You could check out recordings, things like that. Yeah, I could, could just sit in the same room and see what happens. Right, exactly. But as an enthusiast, you probably also would like your kids to be to be able to be exposed to the things that you're enthusiastic about. And sometimes, Absolutely. sometimes it's not always going to come from the parents. That enthusiasm can be a little overbearing sometimes when it's a parent, you know. So why not? Why not let it be done through some some great enthusiastic expert teachers? Uh, if you want to learn more, you can head over to uh, uh, signumuniversity.org/academy. So that's S-I-G-N-U-M university.org/academy. And if you want to get in touch and ask some questions, you can head over to your email and you can email them at academy at signumu.org. So again, that's S-I-G-N-U-M-U. Dot org. So it's a cool program. We're uh, honored that they contacted us to to want to promote what they're Sounds doing amazing. here on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of great options out there. And this is definitely one that yeah, you should consider this, this spring semester for your for your family. Okay. Heidi, Death on the Nile. Yeah. <laughs> we're here to discuss Death on the Nile. Um, we talked about, we're going to be talking about the first nine chapters. So that, you know, depending on the edition you have, it's either like part one, which is divided up into chapters or like, it turns out that there's some weird stuff going on with how they divided up this book because in some editions it has a part one where it's just doing that introduction to the characters, you know, characters in order of appearance. And then it switches over to part two and that's called Egypt. And that's the story proper. So the first part is almost like a prologue. I don't know what your edition has as far as that goes. Cause then I saw some editions, chapter one. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter one is just divided into 11 parts, I think. So either way, we're going to go up through chapter nine, which is they're on the boat. And the sort of central conflict of the story has been revealed, although the crime has not yet been committed. So we're about 115 pages into the book and we still don't have a murder. We have lots of... It's a late murder threats. for it Agatha is, Christie. It yeah. is. It's a late murder. <laughs> we we should uh, somehow incorporate like 
that into the title of this episode. Okay. I want to talk about Christy more generally though, because you're a huge Agatha Christie fan. We've talked about this. I'm a huge yes. fan too, but what are your favorite Agatha Christie books? Like does, where does this book prior to this reading say fall into the official Heidi White Agatha Christie canon top list? I don't know how many books she she wrote is yeah, it like top, top five I, for you? Death on the Nile is in my top five yeah for sure it's a it's a good puzzle uh it's psychologically compelling it's got great characters location it's got Hercule Poirot my favorite of yeah. her detectives like it's it's it has all the ingredients and it's a classic it's one of the books that makes her you know the queen of crime yeah how about you Damon oh it's definitely top five probably three depends on the day you ask me i think my all-time favorite at this moment is the abc murders oh that's a great one but i love this one this is probably my some days is my second favorite some days is my third because i do poro usually pushes it over the top for me but i do love and then there were none just for the moodiness of it creepy yeah, yeah, I love the kind of darkness so, of it, but it doesn't have Jack is 15 and he's just getting into Agatha Christie. He's just, he read Roger Ackroyd and Peril at End House. And now he's going to, he just started today, Death on the Nile. Oh, uh, right he on. doesn't actually listen to the podcast because, you know, as a wise person once said, parental enthusiasm can be overbearing. Um, <laughs> I wonder who said that. Um, I, yeah. Um, but I won't take them to see the movie unless they read the books. That's just like a general rule of thumb in life. Um, so oh, well, if they yeah, want to go yeah. see the movie with me, then they have they both, my 12-year-old and my 15-year-old, have to read the book. So Jack just started it today. Um, so have I'm so con- curious what he's going to think about it, too. Have you considered saying that if they want to go to the movie, they have to listen to the podcast? I've not considered it till this moment, but I am going to start considering it. Maybe I'll give them... You should just, Some you should remind him that credit. his friends, Tim and David are also on the podcast and it's not just his mom's enthusiasm. Seriously. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I will on, remind him that. Come on, Jack. Pass that little message on. <clears throat> yeah. Do you need to pause the episode so you can go do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's at a basketball game. I, oh. um, I do. He does read the books that you recommend. I will oh. say that if I say Mr. David Kern recommends this book he will read it and then he says can i please call him david and then i'm like not to yours plus <laughs> you that's you can buy a lottery ticket. right um, yeah <laughs> okay so um yeah this one's real high for me too and i was thinking while i was reading about in some ways it feels a little different one of the reasons is because we we have a late murder um it doesn't take place in england which you know Right. Most of her books take place in the English countryside or on some estate, or at least like in some village, you know, in the outskirts of London. Um, so this is, it's international. It has a late murder, um, but it does do something that a lot of Christie's do where we've got a bunch of different characters. Uh, we've got great mood. We've got, you know, Poirot being clever, all those sorts of things that we're used to. So it got me thinking like, those are some things that she does well. But as this book shows, she also does have some range in terms of escaping some of the typical things that she does. But when we look at Agatha Christie more generally, like, why has she endured so well? Like, she's sold, I think it's like the Bible and Shakespeare and then Agatha Christie, right? I th- something, right. some crazy statistic like that. So in your mind, why has she been so enduring? Why in a hundred years after she started writing her stories, do people still, I mean, I look in the bookstore 
and I sell just a ton of Christie. Like I'm constantly reordering it. Huh. So why in 2022 are we still reading? What has caused her to endure? Why is she so memorable? Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a great question. Uh, so genre fiction is generally not known all the time for great literary value. And when you actually find an author who can write genre fiction with stock characters and archetypes as, as Christie does, although you could make the case and maybe you're preparing to that she kind of started it all, right? Like a lot of, a lot of the tropes and the, the stock characters that we recognize in classic detective fiction uh, were invented by Agatha Christie. Um, but now we just think of them as stock, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or at least perfect, but, you know, perfected yeah. for, a po- for a mass audience. Exactly. Even if the ones yes. she didn't invent. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, so I think some of it is, is the fact that her books have some literary value, although she's not the greatest author in the world. And there's plenty of times I'm reading it like an editor and saying, I wish she wouldn't have said this or whatever, but it is genre fiction. Um, and she gets forgiven a lot because she's Agatha Christie. Uh, so, and I also think just the puzzles that she comes up with are so fun. Uh, and she does a really, it's really hard to write detective. Set. Have you ever tried to write a mystery, David? You seem like the kind of person who would. Not like this where I have to like try to trick the audience, but then also have someone solve it. I've never done anything quite like this. I always think I want to, but then feel like I don't have the- It's hard. Like, what's the thing that I'm gonna, I never it have like It seems like, like it would be so hard. So I yeah. reread Agatha Christie, which people think is crazy because, but I, I don't lose oh, I my too. love for it on rereading, which once you know how a plot ends, especially a plot like this, like these that we're reading here, you'd think it wouldn't be interesting to read it again, but it's actually fascinating because you catch all these little clues, you know, who the murder is and you, you get to the end and there's, you know, the big reveal and, mm-hmm. uh, and then you go back and read it and put it together on the back. And it's so mm-hmm. satisfying and not all detective fiction is like that sometimes. And I don't know whether there's something magical about her. And I, I love and and I don't think this is unique to me, but it's also not going to be surprising about me. I love the psychological depth of her characters uh, and how so mm-hmm. much of um, of the the motive uh, and that I, I just love how all of her stock characters actually have humanity to them. And that way she is like Shakespeare because Shakespeare is full of stock characters and archetypes as well. Uh, mm. But they are so compelling and human That's a good point. and Agatha Christie's are yeah. as well. Uh, and so the, it's rare that you, that you, that you end an Agatha Christie novel without caring what happens to the side characters who weren't actually the murderer. And she does a great job of making you care and adding some psychological depth and subtlety um, to all of her characters. And then Poirot is just so delightful. And they're also really funny. All of them um, are just funny. Like they have these like British humor, this dry British humor and lots of satire. (laughs) She has a lot of like mockery of herself. Like even in this book, she talks about how nobody likes to read detective fiction. You know, like there's Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. that, that upon rereading actually add depth to it. It's not just about the plot and the puzzle, although those are always, I think, really, really compelling as well. Especially, I mean, there's just a few, Roger Ackroyd, you know, Ordeal by Innocence. There's a few that just are like the puzzles. Oh, ABC Murders is another one that just the puzzle's so good that you get to the end and you're like, oh, that was just like so satisfying to read. Yeah, 
You know, it's interesting because you you mentioned Jack's reading Ackroyd and I went back and tried and was going to started rereading that recently. And I found that knowing the big reveal in that one, I had a much harder time rereading it. Like that one wasn't holding up as well, knowing that as much as other ones were. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't figure out if I just wasn't in the mood for it. Like I wanted, and that's, and maybe I was just in the mood to not know. So I wanted to go read. Yeah, maybe. But like, you know, Death in the Nile, ABC, a couple of the other ones. There's like a, a um, uh, and then there were none. There's a, there's a tone and a mood. Like t- to me, mm-hmm. that sort of the, the best crime novels, the best mystery novels, the best spy novels. There's the puzzle. There's the plot. There's the adventure. There's the whodunit. All those things that we read for. But I want to go back to them and I think about them and they stick in my head because of that, because of the mood and the tone mm-hmm. and like that. Um, you know, like I, I mentioned on the, the end of the year episode, the, how much I liked who is Maude Dixon, which is not like, it's not a, it, it's not, I don't think in 200 years when people are going to be talking about that book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. But there's a, there's a tone and a mood to that. Like, I don't even care the unfolding of the plot. It was that I so enjoyed being in the like bleak, <laughs> the uh-huh. bleak of the whole thing like she did such a in part of it was like I was kind of in awe of her ability to capture that mood build on it as it goes and then at the end of the book that mood stay with you that's what I that's what I mm-hmm. liked that book and Christy is really good at that too and I think so many people since then you know I think she's borrowing from a long line of 19th century writers like Hawthorne Washington Irving Poe several other writers who were kind of the first people to really introduce mood to to story writing in a way that like hadn't really been done the same way. Like that bleak, just short of nihilistic tone that's underneath the, that's underneath these stories. And I think she took that applied a early 20th century British sensibility to that, but then made it feel universal in a way that like, mm-hmm. no matter if you live, if you lived in, you know, South Carolina in 1942, you still wanted to read it. Oh and yeah. I think she, I think she, the way that she uses tone like just that mood whatever word you want to use keeps you reading and rereading and keeps you like super engaged and even if you kind of remember the details of the plot you can reread it again because even if you know who actually did it the way you get to it and the way like the fear that the characters are in and the way that the things that they're thinking and the way that they're playing each other and like the, the way she shows Egypt and describes the, the boat and all that kind of stuff is so like, she had a real gift for that kind of stuff. And I, that's what I think really for me makes, makes me return to her over and over again. And it's why when I want something that's to get me back in the habit of reading or, you know, get me turning pages again or make me feel good about reading. Cause maybe I've been reading just like a lot of really long philosophical books or whatever, or something Russian. <laughs> uh, sometimes you exactly. just need to read something quick and, and it's not just the plot that we go, that we go for, right. It's the whole experience of reading and she's able to read mm-hmm. to like again and again, in almost every book, give us the reading experience from cover to cover. And it's, in a way that's not just about solving the puzzle or getting to the end to know what happens. Like we, she's so fun to read because while the plot matters, while the puzzle matters, the process is the, is the joy. Um, And that's not true of everybody. Like I, you know, I don't even know that that's true to very many mystery writers at all, to be honest. Right. Yeah. I mean, Christie's maybe the only one for me, Um, but I mean, and I cut my teeth on, 
reading, like I became a reader, reading yeah. Agatha Christie and P.G. Woodhouse and yeah. Lucy Maud Montgomery. And mm. so yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm used to it. I love the tone. She's a master <clears throat> of the ellipses, uh, which is kind of a rare punctuation mark to become a master of. And I think she owns yeah, don't, it. Don't try it. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's she's great at that. So I, I think she's fantastic. And there is this. One of the things that I love, especially about Poirot, is there's this, uh, he's so cosmopolitan and, you know, she hated him. Like she did not like him at all, Um, which is funny to me because I love him. Uh, He has this incredible, like strong moral center. And I think Death on the Nile is one of the books that shows that the most. And he's like that in all of his stories. He has this very compelling humanism that has his own rules to it. And I feel- He's a code. I feel like it's probably not too strong to say, yeah, like he has an honor code and a moral code. He does not approve of murder, right? That and uh, <laughs> and he has this this like very deep and abiding, enduring, consistent hum, humanism that goes through all of his books and this strong morality. And guys, it's not too hard to say that I absorbed that because I was such a young reader when I began to mm. read that yeah. a lot of my, I, I find myself kind of like repeating, you know, making excuses for this, but like being hard on this other sin or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. that's a Poirot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there is a moral center to these novels. There is a strong sense of justice and humanity, um, uh, which, it, but they're not morality tales. It's not heavy handed. It's just fun and genre fiction, but there is kind of this, uh, this sense of justice that, that we as moral readers can put our weight down on when reading it, which is kind of nice. And I think that uh, yeah. that's not always true of, of contemporary detective fiction um, mm-hmm. that kind of plays with, with different, you know, different ideas of justice. And it's like, what about this? You know, cause that's what mm-hmm. detective fiction is all about, right? Justice. Um, yeah. And so there's there, some, some detective fiction has kind of a slippery internal morality to it, but not Christie, which I like, that's a comforting to me. But it doesn't not introduce the potentiality for, slip, for slippery morality. I mean, this one, like, even in the first nine <clears throat> chapters is very complex morally. Yeah. Yeah. Stop characters, notwithstanding, it's a simple plot, but it is, you're taking sides as you're reading mm-hmm. it, right? It asks you, mm-hmm. the book does, it's like, whose side are you on here? And even as he's trying to figure out what he thinks of things and the astute mm-hmm. reader is noticing little things here and there about his observations, right? Like she uses Poirot's POV and his own, and as with any great mystery writer, the, the, the observational skills of the detective to reveal what the reader needs to know. So if you're paying like, that's why mystery writing is reading, reading mystery writing is an exercise in paying attention, which is why it's great. Everybody should read mystery writing for that reason. Should everybody should read crime fiction and mystery writing and spy reading. Like it's, yes, it's genre. Yes. It's can be a little bit of popcorn or whatever, but it helps you be a better reader. Like, I think that's why so many great writers and so many like scholars over the years, Russell Kirk, for example, loved mystery writing. And I think that's, that's a big part of why, like it's asking questions about Mm -hmm. morality, but it's also an exercise in being a good reader. Um, Right. to, To read a mystery, to read a mystery. Well, you have to do so many of the things that you have to do well to read anything. Well, 
Okay. Namely, so pay attention. This, right. So when you're reading, you probably have questions to ask, but I'm going to slip in a question here. Um, what you just said is so important. And I, it started me on this train of thought. I love it. I like really love that, David. Okay. So what do you pay attention to when you're reading Agatha Christie? I know you're probably trained by her and by your, you know, by who you are as a reader to pay attention to all kinds of things, but what are you most naturally drawn to when you're reading a detective novel, specifically Agatha Christie? What are you most paying attention to? I'm paying attention to when Poirot is asking a question of something, not asking a question of a person, but when he's asking a question to himself. So Hmm. he is, there's something he is trying to decipher something. It seems like, or he's beginning, he's making an observation and saying, what does this mean? We don't even have a crime yet, but already he's suspicious because he's saying, this seems strange, right? And that's one of the things I love about this book. We're being introduced to the crime before the crime ever happens because we're being introduced to the possibility of the crime. And um, that's all through Poirot, his own suspicions. So when your detective is suspicious of something or asking a question, that's, that's an obvious one. Like there, and the one, and when it says that the detective is paying attention to something, I mean, it, it's asking us to pay attention to it. Like it's, it's very simple. I'll, honestly. Are you, are you paying attention? Is, I, I mean, I'm asking this because of what you just said about paying attention and also mm-hmm. thinking about conversations I just had with Jack, cause he just read Roger Ackroyd and would come out. Why are we, why is Poro asking about the boots? And you know, like he's, he's trying to figure out the puzzle, which I don't yeah. read detective fiction like that. I am paying attention mm-hmm. to the characters always. And that's just mm-hmm. how I am as a reader. Always. What's motivating this person? And like, and I, what's I the conflict? Like, always, who are these? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like in this, I'm interested in the love triangle. I'm, I'm wanting to know what's going on with Rosalie and her mother. I'm very curious about Tim Allerton, right? There's, there's all these characters that are being also brought Tim in. Also Tim McIntosh. And, um, well, always, right? He is a puzzle. <laughs> That's a mystery novel in itself. Um, so that Tam McIntosh. Is, right. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I'm not trying to find clues necessarily, like I'll notice something, as you said, like, I'll be like, Ooh, whatever. This is, why did she freak? Why did Lynette freak out about this letter? That mm-hmm. seems significant, but I'm not like trying to put it together into the puzzle. Um, yeah. So are you trying to solve the crime as you read a detective story? Or do you looking at the writing and how, no. like knowing, I mean, this is another, I, like how I don't the care. author is piecing it together. I, I, I'm weird. Like, I don't care about solving it. I like the process. I like to read. I like to watch for how the author is revealing it. Like, cause I'm, cause I'm kind of like in awe of when it comes off and it feels easy. Like when a, when a writer like Agatha Christie can do this over and over again. And yes, there is a bit of formula to it, but to be able to take the formula, to be able to take the strategies and make them feel like they didn't take them any work at all. I'm just impressed by that. You know? Um, when I get confused at the end, it's, the, it's like that anchorman line. I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we've ever referenced anchorman, on the show, so but, um, you know, like I, so I don't spend a lot of time trying to solve the crime. Although I do enjoy when the puzzle is revealed, like the catharsis of that, I'm interested mm-hmm. in like the, the way the author pulls that off and like draws us into it and creates the tone and the mood and reveals the characters. And, um, and then I'm interested in like, what are the, I'm kind of always looking to see like, what are the, what are the deeper things that the author was thinking about when they were creating the story, but which I don't mean 
what is the author, what moral point is the author trying to make? But when an author is writing a book, there's something in the subcon their subconscious at least that sort of comes out. So I'm always kind of curious, like what was going on in Christie's mind when she was putting this particular mm -hmm. mystery together, when she was reeling this particular crime. So those are the kind of things right. that I that I like. What about you? Yeah, same. I mean, characters, like I said, I'm not necessarily trying to solve the puzzle. I kind of let the puzzle wash over me as I'm yeah, reading a detective exactly. story. Yeah, same. But I, other, like Jack is like trying to solve the puzzle, you know, like there's this clue and he like makes a list of the clues and he's like trying to figure it out because that's what's pleasurable and fun to him about it. Um, like he reads what, the book the same way he like plays a he, well, I'm not totally sure, but I'm thinking right now like a six with a five wing. But um, that, yeah, like that is like he reads he reads these novels the same way he plays like a strategy game. Yeah, yeah. and it's and risk. I don't read like that, but he loves it just as much as I do, yeah. just for a yeah. different reason, which I think is what's so compelling about these stories. That's a, but that's a I point. have started, like I've started reading it like a writer more mm -hmm. as I, now that I know, now I know the ends, even this book, I'm thinking, yeah. I, I remember having a conversation with George Saunders, which is a, like a statement I really like to make in life. <laughs> One time I was talking to George Saunders and, I've, um, you know, Heidi, I've interviewed and, a lot of people and yeah. <laughs> I'm still jealous about that one. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, I actually haven't interviewed a lot of people, which is why this is like peak glory day for me. Um, so Anyway, I remember him saying, I don't, him telling me, like, I don't necessarily think about themes at all when I'm writing a story. I'm just thinking about technical problems and how to solve yeah. them. And yeah. so if I'm, you know, writing a story, then I get to a point in which I need in the story to solve a technical problem. And then I do, and that ends up creating kind of a theme or a mood or a tone, like you said, but he's like, I'm not doing that on purpose. I'm just trying to solve this problem. And I can see that quite a bit, even as reading Death in the Nile over again this time, I've read it several yeah. times. This like, I can see now, you know, you and I, we know how it ends, right? And we're not going to give anything away. Don't worry, listeners. But I can see kind of a scene when someone who's not the murderer, I can Darth see Vader. her kind of creating, yep, yeah, exactly, creating he, he suspicion. Was, he's, he's her father. Yeah, a gold, it's the goldfish. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I can see her kind of creating suspicion and and the red herring, right? And I can, mm -hmm. it's like I can see her at her typewriter or whatever with her pencil being like, how do I get people to be suspicious of this person, but also drop a clue over here and, yeah. um, you know, tie off this loose end so that when the reveal comes, I didn't cheat, you know, those kinds yeah. of things. Like yeah. I see it as more in more technical sense. And in yeah. those, in that way, I just think, in that way, I think, man, she's like a master, because she, she does like that I, every single time in every scene. But it looks so easy. Right? It, it feels it's like... It's just like a clause she, in the middle of the It feels like she I'm didn't like, put oh, any work into it. Right. Effortless. That's what it feels like. Mm. Hey, yes. so, okay, at the beginning of this book, we get that section where like, it seems like there's, a, as I said, a bunch of different ways this is, this is presented in terms of structure. But we get the... I'm just going to call it a prologue where we get the characters revealed, you know, like we get a little page or two on each of the different characters revealed in order of appearance before we get to the actual sort of plot story. And I'll just proper. call that. Yeah. I'll just call that the prologue. 
Why Great. do you think she does that? Because I was thinking about how it feels like Shakespeare or something, right? Like there's like a chorus or, you know, you know how at the beginning of the plays is character. Sometimes you'll get like characters in order of appearance, right? There's just a list of the characters and it makes it, we have this big cast almost in this book, like 12 characters that mean plus all these side characters and keeping track of them all. is difficult. So is it just that she's trying to say, okay, here's your 12 people get to know them, get used to them. Here's a little bit about each of them. Here's how they factor into the story. And she's trying to just sort of keep us from getting too lost. Or do you think there's something like more to that? And that is not a leading question. Oh yeah. There's definitely something more to that for sure. So if that was a leading question, (laughs) it's fine. (laughs) Um, I mean, by the time we get past page one, we know Lynette Ridgway, right? Who's the center of this story. And, um, and we know the common people's reaction to Lynette Ridgway. I like a lot that we yeah. have Lynette Ridgway displaced. Um, and oh, yeah. your point about Shakespeare is totally valid. Like in, in these characters in chapter one, don't ever come back. Right. Um, Mr. Burnaby, the landlord of the three crowns. Like we're, so we're seeing this bigger than life woman um, with beauty and brains and fame and love and she has everything that men desire and and women aspire right um and 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 we know right away the kind of person that she is and because this is a detective story of course we're wondering is this our victim right um and and so we have this really interesting contrast of like victim and triumph and uh, so that inspires both pity and envy, I think, from the very beginning. And that creates this dissonance in the reader that we want resolved from the very first page of the novel. That is different than if we could have seen her from behind her own eyes, which is how we meet her next. You know, I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree. And I was thinking, so we're going to go see the movie and then talk about it. I think it comes out February 11th. And that's why we did the book now. And it just occurred to me, I, I personally like Kenneth Branagh as Pardo, but I know that not everybody does. Um, but I'm really excited to see what they do with Gal Gadot because Man, I think she's such an interesting choice for Lynette. Well, but she has so many of those things that you were describing, right? Like yes. she has, yes. she's this international star. Like you, you have whoever's in that movie, like it makes so much sense to cast someone who was wonder woman, right? Like she's one of the most recognizable women in the world. So as an audience member, you're, you're in the place of the people in the story who are on the ship, who know who she is. Like if the average person in England knew who Lynette Ridgway was, the average person going to the movie is going to have seen her on Netflix in some dumb movie or on wonder woman or in some Academy award nominated performance. And she has, she has the charisma, she has the beauty, she has the glamour, but she also has the name. And mm-hmm. I think that that's such an, I, I like that choice. There's a lot of other actors in the movie of varying degrees of fame that are interesting choices that I'm excited to see, but it just makes so much sense to cast Gal Gadot in that, mm-hmm. in that role. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. And if they're able to actually sort of harness that in a way that right. uh, enlivens the the way they adapt the movie. That's going to be one of the big things I'm looking for when we, when we see that. Um, because, and I think they, you know, they made some interesting choices 
it just based on the trailers. I don't know if you've watched it yet, but um, it's going to mm-hmm. be, yeah. it's going to be, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited to see how they do this movie. Um, but you know, I, like I said, I'm a little more optimistic and on board with Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot than, than some people are, but I, we can talk about that when it's time to talk about the movie. I've got many thoughts on the challenge of adapting. What, really? Surprise. <laughs> um, so do you come out of that prologue or let's, let's just say these first nine chapters, this first 115 or so pages, do you come out of it with like, I'm on this character's side. Like this is the character. This is my favorite character other than Poirot. Like where are you in terms of like choosing an alignment and an alliance in the love, <laughs> tri- in the love triangle just, specifically? Um, Okay, yeah. So in the love triangle specifically, but then also are there any other characters that just are particularly interesting and appealing to you? Like, um, so let's do those two yes. questions. Let's do those separately. Yeah. yeah. So in the love triangle, I'm not sure I can see the love triangle without... Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely... I remember reading this for the first time when I was a teenager. And... Yeah kind of sympathizing more with Lynette. Um, hmm. Like all fair in love and war. Like, yeah, like there's, huh. she, um, and, and not understanding the depth of emotion and, and, and kind of despising Jackie. Her for, like Because I, I'm a person who like values poise, right? Like, so <laughs> yeah. that yeah. like kind of, looking down on Jackie as like a little bit pathetic. Um, however, as a mature, hopefully maybe a little, at least more mature, um, adult You're more woman, mature than when you were 16. Yes. Or, yes um, I don't feel that way at all. Now I look, because now I value friendship more than getting what you want in mm-hmm. like love and war. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think at the time I probably had love triangles of my own and kind of felt like may the best woman win. Right. Like, um, um, it's just interesting how, and I think that's, that is, that's compelling in itself. Like that it is, there's a lot of moral ambiguity that Agatha Christie works into her stock characters. It's not, it's not quite as simple as just obviously I'm on this person's side. What strikes me about that as interesting is that it kind of makes Lynette for all her, her glamour, her beauty, her ability to capture a room. It makes her, it gives her a degree of immaturity, right? Because you're talking about how like the 16 year old view of yourself is just like, it's all fair in love and war. We can't, the 16 year old person can't look past their passions or their passion for another person. Exactly. And look at the bigger picture of what it's going to mean to their friendships and their life in general and like have a little bit of wisdom, right? And she acts like the 16-year-old kid who Exactly. who who can't see the big picture. And so for all of her glamour, she's still a child. And I think that Right. That that's even mentioned a little bit when Poirot's talking to Simon Doyle and he says something about her age and Simon's like, well, she's, she's gonna be 21 soon or whatever. Like, you know, so we're reminded of her youthfulness, but she's at that, she's like supposed to be at the cusp of like being a mature woman who everybody looks up to and is in awe of, but she's a child. And right. 
there's a that, that's something that I think Christy does a really good job of reinforcing for us that this is a complicated character because on the one hand she's a full-grown beautiful woman who everybody adores but she's also kind of a dummy right well and there's this when I, I just I think my number one reason for loving Agatha Christie as much as I do is that she seems like I want to I've always put her on my list of authors when people ask of like who do you want to have dinner with or lunch with or whatever who would you know three authors that you'd like to have dinner with and I always say Agatha Christie because I she has this like comprehensive very compassionate depth of vision into the human soul that she writes into these stock characters like there's Lynette Doyle is on the one hand she is what like I said every man desires which makes women either aspire to be like her or envious of women like her and pretend that Mm. you know Gal Gadot is not that beautiful right like and but she is like objectively an absolutely specially stunning person and like and 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 she also has this like strength of character just like Lynette Ridgway and so if when women are like oh whatever I don't think she's that pretty they're lying because they're envious <laughs> and that is written into these kind of novels. Like and, when I talk about Brad Pitt. So. Uh, exactly. Right. He's not that special. Right. Maybe Army mm-hmm. Hammer. Right. Um, who's in the, in the movie. Um, <laughs> right. That. Well, actually, I, no, I, yeah, the one, Army yeah. Hammer. I like that guy. Well, actually, I don't I know like, you love like Army that guy. Hammer. I like his performance. I know, I realize he's turns like a out he's a creep. failure. <laughs> turns like, turns yeah. out he's not a great guy. <laughs> This personal story. Is I just, like I just enjoy even his... googling what we're talking about. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if you're if you're like of a certain age, just stay off the internet and don't Google his name. Yeah, <laughs> or if you're any age, turns out maybe. Right. So on the one hand, she's this powerful, beautiful woman, Lynette Ridgway. But on the other hand, she's like, you know, from the very beginning, she's probably doomed, and and that creates like a pathos, and it's and so there's a fragility to her, and this. Um, like I, I think if you if you hate her throughout the story, you're missing the whole point because she is there is this vulnerability to her that's written into the fabric of the story, uh, even in the fact that she's the victim. And 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 so we're we as the readers, what Agatha Christie is doing is like reckon with this, this beautiful mm-hmm. woman who has everything. And yet she's mm-hmm. doomed. Like, how are you going to mm-hmm. feel? And look what she did. How are you going to feel about her? Are you going to have any compassion at all? I was, I was noticing how like the copy for the book right off the bat says that Lynette, Lynette, it dies. Right. But here we are a third Mm -hmm. of the way through the book and she's still alive. And so there's like no mystery about who's going to die. And so that just goes into what you're saying, right? Like the book isn't about the fact like revealing it's the book is not a mystery about who dies. It's a mystery of about Mm -hmm. like the choices that are made. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, she, I, this is a huge stretch, I admit, but, you know, reading is all about making connections from one book to another. And I kept thinking about Helen of Troy in this book for some reason. Like That's the not idea a stretch that this is at like all. This yes. beautiful woman who everybody that they look at is like enamored with and the war begins because of her. 
And she's like the saddest woman in the world, like the, right. the, the victim. She's like the perpetrator and the victim mm. because of her beauty, which I think is like the feminine condition, right? Like that's, <laughs> which I think kind of is explored and examined in this novel. Like, what does it mean to be, again, like you said, I, Maybe it's a stretch, but I don't think it is. And you can just read it like light genre fiction and that's totally fine. Just read it and move on. But there is this wrestling, I think, that Agatha Christie does in a lot of her novels, what it means to be a woman, the tragedy of beauty, um, and yet the envy of it for women who aren't. And, and just that to be both the, the object and the agent of desire, the, 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 the expectation of beauty and the cost of beauty is but also of like the question kind of, of the what is of beauty? Story. Like what right. is beautiful? Because Lynette had, because Lynette physically, everybody looks in awe at her, right? But then you look at someone like Poirot and one of the great things about this book is he can look at, he looks at all these different characters and he's able to see into them. He's able to see like, there is something more going on here. She is one of the most beautiful, like she is so beautiful that everybody is in awe of her, but she's deeply sad. He can look at like, mm-hmm. You know, he looks at Simon and sees there's more to him than meets the eye. Every character he meets, the point of Poirot as a character, he is not just a great detective because he can say, okay, here's five clues. They add up to this picture, right? He's a great detective because he can he recognizes something inside of these characters beyond what's just the surface picture of that puzzle piece. And so that allows her to think about questions like what is beauty? What does it mean to be smart? What does it mean to be successful? Like all the things that she's constantly asking, what does it mean to be destitute? What does it mean to be in despair? What does it mean to hate? What does it mean to be like, have longing? What does it mean to like have wanderlust? Like all these questions that she's constantly asking in her books are because Poirot is able to see more than what's on the surface. And that's right. Yeah. And then that takes, it brings us along into those contemplations. I totally agree. I think that's really well said. And it again, back to the question of justice, which I think is the inherent contemplation of detective fiction. Uh, is this like, is that just then plain justice? Did Lynette have her two decades of triumph? And because, and in order to like write the scales of the universe that she had everything is, is her destiny as a victim kind of foreordained by the fact that is that just justice being done because she had, she was, you know, this bright and vivid flame that had to just be snuffed out because she had everything. Right. And that I think is, I mean, we see that at the beginning, even, even in the first couple of pages, when someone says, you know, beauty and brains and money, she's an heiress. And now the most desirable man in England is in love with her. Like, is that doesn't seem fair somehow dot, dot, dot. There's that ellipses again, right? The ellipses that is asking us, inviting us into the question of whether or not that's fair or not. So if Lynette were not incredibly beautiful, incredibly rich from a successful family, if she didn't have privilege, all those sorts of things, do you think Jackie would have responded the way that she did? If they had both been like middle class, they're both, you know, they're working for the BBC, they're punching buttons, they're walking home at the end of the day and buying a baguette. I don't know, you know, and right. you can't really buy a, you know, buying a baguette in London, buying, they're going to get bangers and mash, fish and chips, whatever. And, and they're uh, fighting over the fish and Guinness, assistance. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are, is, 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 uh, is Jackie trying to kill her or whatever? Like, Great question. Like is, is Great Jackie question. so upset Is with it her? personal? Right. Well, is this, 
Does her is jealousy really rage your point? that strongly? Because right. is Jackie, uh, and from what we know now to this point in the story, is Jackie's rage and 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 wound is her deep wound personal just because of Simon, or is there? something kind of inherent within Lynette's triumph exactly. over yes. the universe. But yes. yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, I think that that's a really, really good question. And I actually have an answer to it that I cannot give at this yeah, point. Okay. Hold on to that discussion. One. Dot, dot, dot the ellipses again. Would Hira have been as mad? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> If she were the fishmonger's daughter that Paris had stolen. But then that's right. like, why is Paris, you know, like that's kind of, uh, that's another question. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So as we get into this next part and, you know, the drama is really going to ratchet up. Um, are there any other characters that have caught your eye that you particularly like? You like the way that Christy portrays them, you enjoy reading them. And then also, um, what are your, what, like, what really just, Last question, like what really worked for you in this section and what are you excited to watch carry over? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Mrs. Ellerton is so delightful. She's like soothing <laughs> to have on stage. She's like the one who's not in emotional turmoil, you know, and that's kind of nice. She provides this like anchor to the story. But I mean, Rosalie Otterburn is a very... You know, she's a mysterious character at this point, and she's also, I think, a very compelling one. Your eyes are kind of on her when she's on stage, so to speak. How about you? You know, I do find Simon Doyle to be an interesting character because he's this guy who's like not that special. But for some reason, she lent these two women are obsessed with him and (laughs) <laughs> what's the secret yeah. and what's the deal no but like what um you know he he gets taken she she like lynette is kind of obsessed with him and that's kind of why he goes with her right and so like there's there's just like weird deep-seated psychology psychological questions going on with him and then of course you have all these mysterious characters on the edge like the doctor and her uh her American agent and so forth, uh, which I don't believe she means to be the one who is um, finding roles for her on Broadway. Right. She's trying to sell her. <laughs> the American agent is trying to sell her, her, her novel. <laughs> right. Yes. No, there is a secret. There's some kind of random house hidden agenda. will not buy it. <laughs> David, just send your manuscript to random house. Okay. <laughs> No, I just said they won't buy it. Um, <laughs> what, okay, so what really works for you in this section? What are you looking forward to like, carrying over and what threads are you looking looking forward to following? I think the love triangle is brilliant. I, I think that um, Poirot's sympathy with Jackie uh, and the conversations that are had with Jackie um, and like the, I think that the setup of the love triangle, uh, the, the, the increasing sense of menace, this um, the, the pity that we are asked as readers to have um, on Jackie, the question mark we have about Simon, kind of our dissonant response to uh, to Lynette, um, I I think are just incredibly well done. And then the characters that the the characters that are not part of the love triangle are presented like peppered in in such a way that that we 
we are forced to pay attention to them and see them as human. Um, and but yet all also eyes really anybody are could be a threat. The triangle. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And all eyes are on the triangle. So that, yeah. and I just think she does that incredibly well. What about you? Well, what I'm looking forward to is when Tim joins us in the next episode and we make him guess how this book ends. Oh, because he hasn't read it. I don't think he's read this one, but also like when he had to, when he guessed what happened in Rebecca, it's one of the two or three most (laughs) popular episodes we've ever done is when Tim is just guessing what happened in that book. So I I feel like we need to try to recapture some of the, the, magic of tim predicting what happens in a mystery book that we that we were able to yes. harness last last I winter this so idea. that's what i'm really looking forward to is making tim I guess on plan. the air how this book is gonna end um well heidi this was a good time uh i know i'm so excited about book. reading this book uh, don't forget that if you you're interested in creative writing or languages or, or just love books that, um, or, you know, have a student who is ages eight to 18 and loves those things or wants to, to learn more about those things. You can head over to signumuniversity.org slash academy or email academy at signumu.org to learn more about what they've got up to at the Signum Academies Club programs. Again, those are online. They're low stress. There's lots of options, including Old English and Old Norse, if you're, in, if you're interested in learning those languages. So, uh, that is super you know, cool. In, you know, they're just, in, just engage, embrace the nerd inside of you. Like embrace the nerddom and just go for it. That's what I say. Um, mm-hmm. So well, you and um, I are way past that. So I think Old Norse <laughs> is the next step. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, we have lots going on here. Uh, that retreat, we got Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. That registration is going to go up. We've got the daily poem. We've got the Patreon episodes on Anna Karenina. We've got the Plays the Thing, which of course is you know Tim's uh, spearheading that show. That's on Henry, Warren, Henry the Fourth right now. Um, what else is going on? Heidi? We, we got Withy Windle, two seasons of that with season three coming. We've got bibliography, new episodes of that coming soon. That cover it. I think that covers it. Yeah. And the retreat. Always yeah. back to the retreat. Don't forget you can join the conversation over on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash close reads i like my brain now immediately tries to go to facebook.com slash goldberry books because i say that so often um, but sure. it's facebook.com slash close reads to join the conversation there and we're all over social media we've got the email newsletter all, all that kind of stuff so if you have questions for us you can email me at david at goldberrybooks.com and at the end of the next three two episodes from now we will do our q a episode on the on death in the nile and then heidi we're on to as um as they lay dying next. So um, it's a little different, a little different than this book, but it's a shift. Uh, also, I, like I know that Faulkner has a reputation and it's a reputation that some people have a difficult time with, but I hope we'll give we're as, here for, right? as they lay dying a try, because honestly, I think it's a genius book. I, th- I think it's a really special bit of American lit. So I hope people will join us for that ride. But um, for now we're on the death of the Nile ride and uh, we're gonna have a good time over the next few weeks. So Heidi, any final thoughts? I have no final thought. Well, I guess I do. I do have a final thought. And that is that I'm just um, so excited to be doing a book that I love because I like struggled my way through Confederacy of Dunces and learned to appreciate it, loved a lot of things about it. But this is it didn't come kind of like enthusiastic about, exactly. Yeah. I had to be guided into it, which is a pleasurable experience 
uh, in itself, but it's a, it's a little more of a fight, you know, to like be taught yeah. to love. Well, it can't a book. be all your reading experiences. Um, yeah, exactly. And so it's just really fun to do to do an Agatha Christie in which I just have nothing but pure effervescence. So yeah, it's really great. Well, I just want to say thank you to everyone who, um, as we begin a new year here on Close Reads, everybody who's been listening and. It's just sending us nice emails and and coming by the bookstore and um, sending us notes in the mail. Like we've gotten, I've gotten snail mail at the bookstore. People just sending nice nice letters. Oh, um, I love it's, that. It's just really, I'm grateful to be able to be a part of this community and play a small role in facilitating these conversations and just like meeting new people. And uh, it's, I, I just want to express as we begin 2022 how grateful I am to be entering another year in June, it'll be seven years of this podcast. Um, you, you know, I, Heidi, you joined later, but it's been seven years that this has been going. Really? Yeah. So wow. uh, June, some, yeah, seven June, is a magical number. Something or other. I know. Right. <laughs> so just, I just want to express that publicly, how grateful I am to be able to do this and to everyone who's been supporting us on Patreon and by spreading the word, like helping, letting us do this. Um, and, making it possible we're we're grateful for it so just just wanted to get a chance to say that before we sign off so thank you and thanks to you heidi for for coming on at 11 p.m eastern time on a friday night <laughs> well it's 9 p.m my time so actually more of a thank you still to you. Friday and night. <laughs> i would like to say express my gratitude for this community as well i'm with you everything you said yeah. i echo except yeah. i don't own the bookstore i just visit it well, and buy things so. of it <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's another thing. Thank you to everybody. Um, the, the books that you all bought like through bookshop or coming in the store for Christmas this year are a huge help to us. Um, like Bethany and I make our living doing this bookstore and this podcast. So, uh, thank you to everybody who, who has bought books through us. Um, our kids, thank you. Cause they're fed. <laughs> Um, That's a good thing. So just, yeah, just want to say thank you. Lots of, lots of, lots of gratitude um, as we enter this, this new year. And um, just, just wanted to express that. So, all right, Heidi, let's get out of here before I keep talking. All right. For Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, who's in Aruba or something fun. I'm David Kern. Not for Tim. <laughs> for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>